great to be with you. You know, if you preach every week in church or you teach in class three times a week, you don't get to choose what you pick. You just do what's coming next. But if you get to preach once in chapel a year, you get to preach what's on your heart, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. But I need your help. I want you to imagine with me that you're not sitting in a gymnasium in the year 2017, but that you're in the town, let's say, of Ephesus, say the first century, say around the year 95, and uh, imagine that you're a a young believer, been growing in the faith, meeting uh, in the local house church there and and regularly, and you're excited, and uh, yet there's been recently uh, one of the leaders in the church was arrested, he was uh, taken away, and... uh, that's been very sad. You've been praying for, for John for, for this time. And, and, and while you're uh, finishing up dinner, imagine this one evening, suddenly there's a frantic pounding on the door and there's a messenger who's uh, telling you, come, come quickly, come quickly. Uh, we have a letter from John. And imagine you're that person and you quickly gather together your things. And you rush over to the meeting place with the other believers. You don't have a copy because you've never heard it before and nobody's made any copies. But you're going to hear for the first time this letter from John. Listen. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John to testify to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near John to the seven churches in the province of Asia grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, 
Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know that the devil is about to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And to the angel of the church, in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. She is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash into pieces to pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Now to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of Him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What He opens, no one can shut. And what He shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes and does my will, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the letter keeps going. I'm going to stop right there and just think with, uh, on some things with you. I've been thinking about this passage for a, a bit and some things are just amazing and glorious and in. Uh, of course, Revelation 4-19 through 19 is, gets even better and the story builds to a climax, but um, just some certain things in Revelation 1-3 to 3 that I think are particularly uh, encouraging, challenging, and hope-providing. That's really what I want to do with you this morning is give you hope. I want to do it. I want to organize our thinking around three questions. The first one is, who is Jesus? Okay, so we've just been thinking about so I just want to pull that together who is Jesus and then secondly what does Jesus love and thirdly what does Jesus promise now I'm going to 
spend more time on the third question, just so you know, I'm going to kind of move quickly through the first and the second question. Um, but but uh, when we think about who is Jesus, um, first thing I think that jumps out at us from, from uh, what John wrote here is the physical description. You, you catch that? The description of, of our Lord? Uh, you've seen the artwork, right? Where Jesus looks kind of wimpy. You know, he looks kind of effeminate and kind of... That's not the Jesus of Revelation, is it? This Jesus is glorious. I mean, he's powerful. His appearance is dazzling. His voice, you know, just resounds and booms. And he is armed and dangerous. This is our Jesus. You know, he came to this earth uh, born as a baby. and, And he was meek and he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Because he had to be a sacrifice. But when he returns, he's going to have a very fearsome appearance. The lamb is the lion. And this lion is not the king of the jungle. This lion is the king of the whole planet. We also learn from the revelation that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Okay, so that's a familiar idea. You know, we're raised from the dead on the third day. I want to just mention that right now. Hold on to that because we're going to come. It's going to be a real important foundation when we talk about his promises. He's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. So think about all the kings, presidents, prime ministers, and he's their king. He is the king of kings. And though the kings of the world rage against Jesus, like Psalm 2 says, he's going to one day return and he's going to smash their heads together all those who have not kissed the Son. He is God, it says, he says in verse 17 of the first chapter, I am the first and the last. That's a direct quote right out of Isaiah 44. And uh, there's no doubt this, our Savior is, is God. And he knows the future, which is another function of God himself. And he's, of course, revealing the future here in this book. And one other thing to just note about who Jesus is, he is intimately acquainted with us. Did you get that idea? I mean, just keep, you just keep saying, I know, I know, I, I know your deeds, I know your afflictions, I know your poverty, I know, I know who you are, I know what you're doing. And he cares. You know, he puts his right hand on his servant. Just tender, compassionate. I mean, he's, he's glorious, but he's very caring very compassionate. He comforts those whom he loves. And it also says here that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. He is the lamb. He is our redeemer. Well, that's the first question. Who is Jesus? Of course, much more can be said, but let's consider next, what does Jesus love? This passage tells us a lot about what Jesus loves. And I just want to mention a few of the things uh, here in the, the first letter. He says, uh, I, I, I know your deeds, your hard work. And I, I think that's a, a fair um, thing to note. He says it uh, elsewhere too. He commends Thyatira for their service. Jesus loves hard work. He knows their hard work. He commends them for their hard work. I think it's fair to say it's a little bit different. God is a hard worker. Jesus is a hard worker. I mean, 
God doesn't get exhausted. Jesus did. Remember, he's wiped out on the boat that one time, sleeping. But he values hard work. And if you're working hard for him, that can please him. Now, there's other things as well, and uh, of course, that, that we note there. But what, is, what does Jesus love? He loves hard work. He loves perseverance. And that's a big idea that just pops up throughout this. In fact, that whole idea of overcomers that he keeps saying, Tim, who overcomes, what is that? That's to persevere. Persevere to the end. In fact, if, when he says to the church of Thyatira, TMO overcomes and does my will to the end. That's what it is. To uh, stay true to his name. Uh, he commends those who don't renounce their faith in him. Even when their lives are at stake, they may die. But they persevere. They hold on to what they have. Jesus also loves discernment. You catch that? He, he condemns those who are holding to false teaching of the Nicolaitans and Balaam. But he commends those who are vigilant against false teachers. You know, in the first century, false teachers were aggressive and prolific. And in the 21st century, false teachers are aggressive and and prolific. And Jesus loves his servants who are discerning, who know truth from error, who will resist what is false. Jesus also loves those who are poor, the believers who are poor. He says, I know your poverty. Um, this isn't necessarily a matter of financial impoverishment, but it's the kind of poverty that Jesus committed on his, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. Those who are poor in spirit. And so he can say to the uh, church of Smyrna, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. But he says to the church in Laodicea, you think you're rich, but you're really poor. Because God sees as the world doesn't see. What is rich in the eyes of the world is often poor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, today we have the, uh, the wealthiest people, the Forbes 400 list, and the world would steam them. And I just saw a story this morning about the founder of Snap, you know, just had the big IPO for Snapchat. And uh, this guy's got, I don't know how many billions of dollars. But apart from Jesus, all of the wealthy of the world have nothing, they have a very temporary wealth. And one more thing, Jesus loves purity. He commends those in the church who have not soiled their clothes. He's thankful for those who have stayed away from the immoral prophetess Jezebel because Jesus himself is holy and true and he wants his followers to be like him. Well, that brings us to the third question that I want to consider. What does this passage tell us about our hope? Specifically, what does Jesus promise. And I've identified seven uh, promises that I'm going to speak on. There are others here, but there's seven that I just want to uh, um, look at. And I'm going to spend less time on the first five and more time on the last two, just because th these are things that I think are that uh, more prominent, more repeated, and maybe less known. Maybe uh, you're not, uh, your hope is not grounded in these things. So first one, just right here at the beginning, there's a blessing that's promised to those who uh, hear the words of this prophecy 
and take it to heart. Now, you've heard the first three chapters, uh, which is a portion of the whole, but uh, it's not just if you hear it. You also have to heed it. And he promises a blessing for those who do. That's the first one. Here's a, a second one. Uh, he promises that he is coming soon. Did, that, did you catch that? A bunch of times. This is the time is near. He's coming soon. Now, I just want to maybe answer a question because uh, this was written, as I said, in about the year 95. So it's been, what, 1900 years. So how can it be true that he is coming soon? There's make a couple observations. Number one, on God's timetable and the scale of what he's going to do with his kingdom in eternity, it's a blip. And from our perspective as well, Jesus is coming soon because he's coming next. There's nothing we're waiting for. He could come. He could come this afternoon. And he wants us, and this is the big takeaway on this, he wants us to be ready. So he tells us he's coming soon. We must be ready. We must live faithful lives. Here's a third promise that we see in these uh, letters to the churches. He promises to keep us from the tribulation. Specifically, that's in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. And there's, there's a lot here that I'm not going to go into if you're familiar with a pre-trib rapture view or a post-trib rapture view. Let me just say that in my thinking in my uh, meditation and consideration of the the context and the book as a whole this should be understood as a promise that we are kept from the seven-year tribulation which is described beginning in chapter six and continuing on we're not going to be in it if you are faithful if the, to those who overcome here's a fourth promise he is going to write his new name on us along with the name of God and the name of the new Jerusalem. Now, is that with a sharpie or is this like a heavenly tattoo or what's, uh, what does this mean? Well, you know from, from uh, reading the Bible that a person's name is not just a label. It's not just a tag. You know, uh, God could, could, could put a tattoo on somebody right now and it wouldn't change their, right, if it's just a, if it's just a label. But it's not just a label here. It's, it's, it signifies ownership and identity. So uh, I have in my office a lot of things, about a thousand things, I think, that have my name written on them. Because I own, that, well, those are my books, they're mine. And uh, one day God's going to write his name on me. And Jesus is going to write uh, his name on, on you if you overcome. And we see the the promise uh, fulfilled in that in Revelation 22 where his, na his name will be on our foreheads and we see it in uh, 1 John uh, 3 where it says we will be like him. That's his character imprinted on our souls. Here's a fifth promise and I'm actually going to cheat on this one. But uh, I'm going to uh, bundle a few things together and say that Jesus promises us some mysterious things. Okay, where there's some things in this passage that kind of like, what is, what's the hidden manna? Like, what is this uh, morning star that he promises to us? And 
you know, I'm not sure if I've got it all figured out myself. I'm working at it. I don't think we, we should be lazy. I think we need to try and apply our minds. And, but, but here's the thing. Even if we don't quite nail it down what these things are, I think we can take it as an awesome surprise. We know it's going to be good. But maybe we just have to wait to quite know exactly what he's talking about. Well, promise number six and promise number seven in my list. This is just the way I've enumerated it. I want to spend a little more time on number six and a little more time on number seven because they're very prominent. Jesus promises life. He promises life. Wow. So good. I want to live. I don't want to die. I, I don't want to grow old. I'm I made in the image of God. I have eternity in my heart. And I want to live. And Jesus promises life. Death is the enemy. Jesus promises, well, look at it specifically. In the first letter, he says, uh, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's taking us right back into the Garden of Eden. And he comes up to the cherubim who's got the flashing sword and he takes that sword out of his hand we walk right on through and we come up to the tree of life that we've been in exile from the beginning and when you eat that fruit what do you think that fruit's like pomegranate grapefruit it's life you eat it and you live he also promises to those who overcome a crown of life what is a crown of life well I know what a crown of gold is crown of gold is a crown that's made up of gold, but this is a crown of life. If you have it, you live. And he says that he will never blot your name out of the book of life. What does that mean? Well, if your name is in the book of life, it means you're alive. And if your name is blotted out, then you're not. Jesus is going to Acknowledge your name before his father and his angels. Trying to picture that. So he's promising us the tree of life, the crown of life. Our name's written in the book of life. And he says that we're not going to be hurt at all by the second death. Something really crazy about this world. Everybody, seems like, is running around trying with all their might Uh, fitness crazes, the latest diet fad. Um, uh, there's, there's all kinds of medicines, treatments, um, uh, marches, uh, you know, with pink ribbons and all of that stuff. Everybody, you know, it's this march against death. We want to we defeat death. And um, there's, there's something right ab- about that. But there's something wrong too, and that is the first death is temporary. For everyone, the first death is your body goes on the ground and your soul is separated from your body and uh, temporarily is going to go to one place or another. But then everybody is going to be resurrected, body and soul rejoined. And then you either live, you go to the tree of life, or you face the second 
death. We think about the second death, we think about hell, we can think about the fire, we can think about the darkness, we can think about the utter loneliness, um, but the most devastating thing about the second death is the utter separation from God. No common grace. No goodness of God. Totally distanced from any of His kindness or His peace or His light. And no hope. You have no hope. Utterly hopeless. Those who are in the second death have no hope that things will ever change. They will die forever. And what Jesus promises to him who overcomes is that you will not be hurt at all by the second death. That should motivate us. That should inspire us to want to live for what is true and what is right and what is precious. And these aren't empty words because the one who made these promises is the firstborn from the dead, right? He's the one who died and came back to life again. He's the one who holds the keys of death in Hades. He can say it. There's not a doctor in the world that can promise, make that promise. There's not a rich person in the world that can spend all his money to avoid the first death or the second. But Jesus can promise life. And here's the seventh promise I want to consider with you, and that is that Jesus promises us the right to rule with him. He says in uh, the, the fourth letter that uh, Tim overcomes and does my will at the end, I will give authority over the nations. He says to the, um, in the seventh letter, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Jesus is going, coming back to rule. This is his destiny and his purpose. And what he promises us if we are faithful to Him to the end, is that we will rule with Him. I think some people have this idea in their head that we're going to spend all of eternity sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. That is a lie. And it's a malicious lie. And it's a lie from Satan. And it's designed to undermine your hope. Because you don't want to do that. Probably, most of you. Don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I mean, I'll do it for, you know, an hour. But that's not what Jesus promises. He promises us the right to rule over His creation. This takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve who were made to rule over the creation. They forfeit it because they were rebellious. But we will be faithful and we will rule with Him. It makes us think of King Solomon. When you think, what am I going to do if I'm going to rule? Am I just going to sit on a chair and like, decide cases or whatever? That's not what King Solomon did. King Solomon was a master of wisdom. He studied science and nature. He was a master of animals and plants. And that's going to be the kind of ruling that we do. Jesus told his disciples that they're going to rule with him on 12 thrones. That's Matthew 19. And in Luke 19, he told a parable. And he said that his faithful servant is going to receive 10 cities. Why did Jesus choose that? He could have said something else, but that totally fits in with what we know in Scripture in, in our design to rule with Him. Or what Paul says in 2 Timothy 
chapter 2 and verse 12. This is interesting. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If we endure, we will reign with him. We're going to rule over land and sea. We're going to be mayors and governors and magistrates and supervisors and princes and I don't know what all. Maybe, you know, some here will be, you know, have charge over uh, New Zealand. Maybe you'll be, you know, governor of New Zealand or uh, uh, rule over uh, Wyoming or um, uh, I wouldn't mind uh, being in charge of Cape Town. I've never been to South Africa, but it just always seems to me like, but I don't know, maybe the world's going to be all reconfigured and it's all different. I don't care and that'll be fine as long as I'm ruling with my Savior, ruling with Him, ruling for Him, obeying Him exactly whatever He says. You do it. You do it immediately. You do it with joy. That's our hope. It's not a wimpy hope. It's a glorious hope. And it's promised to those who overcome. Well, let me just wrap up by asking the question, what does Jesus require? What does Jesus require? Well, big idea. Well, if you caught it, again and again, Jesus says, repent. Five times. In 2.5, in 2.16, in 2.22, in 3.3, in 3.19, Jesus calls His church to repent. He calls, calls us back to our first love if we have left it. And He tells us to be ready because He can come back at any time. Repent and be ready. If you want to just sum it up that way. Repent and be ready. If you have other gods, Jesus knows it. It's really clear. He knows. There's another God. It, it, probably not uh, an issue with Balaam these days or Jezebel or the Nicolaitans. We have uh, different false gods, but we still have them. Maybe it's materialism, pursuit of, of wealth or fame or it may be politics. For some people, politics is their God. Republican Party or Democratic Party, maybe other material treasures, fast cars, or maybe your appearance, your reputation, maybe your transcript, maybe your job prospects. That can be an idol. That can be more important to you than God. Or marriage prospects could be more important to you than Jesus. And if any of these things is more precious to you than Jesus, then you have lost your first love. Martin Luther defined a God this way. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. So, you need to ask yourself, what do you love the most? What makes you most happy? What would you walk away from Jesus in order not to lose? And if you find that you fall short there, take heart because He's kind and He's patient and He gives us time to repent. He says that right there. I've given her time to repent. He gives you time to repent. The reason why He warns us is because He loves us. The reason why He disciplines us is because He loves us. But don't presume upon that kindness and think it will last forever 
because he is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a robust hope. Not a wimpy hope, but something grand and glorious. You have revealed it in detail. We don't understand all the details. But what we understand is astonishing. To be with you. Redeemed by you. Pure, clean, holy. With your name on us living in Your presence, ruling with Your Son on this earth. Lord, I ask that You would strengthen that hope in the hearts of these students. May that hope grow ever larger each day. May that be their defining desire, their, their, their driving passion. May all else that they do, and You give us many good things to do, may all else be done for that, for our hope, that we might persevere and endure to the end, that we might please Your Son and bring glory to Him. In His name we pray.